This is an ABC podcast. The ordeal for Pierre and his neighbours started in mid-June with the smell of a dead rat. We couldn't even stand in the building to talk because it was so bad. We had to stand outside. You've met Pierre in our previous episode. Pierre lives on one of Sydney's remaining inner-city public housing estates. Some of its residents are vulnerable and elderly people. Many have nowhere else to go. It's an ageing building and there's always something that needs fixing. And so Pierre is forever complaining about maintenance issues on the old block. If you've met Pierre, you also would have met Caesar. The bright green parrot squawking away on his shoulder as Pierre patrols his inner Sydney neighbourhood. This is the one that swears. Back in June, when a bad and persistent smell started to spread throughout his building, Pierre Goronsky paid a visit to housing officers to try to get their attention. I first started complaining about on the Thursday, on the 16th, um, went in and they said, oh, yes, yes, we'll send off an email, uh, the usual thing. And I knew, sure as God made little green apples, (laughs) that wouldn't happen. So, of course, I was back in the afternoon again saying, well, I haven't heard anything. Um, Have you raised the work order? And, of course, no, we can't give you one of those because the uh, contractor hasn't rung us back yet. Here's Pierre's account of what happens and doesn't happen next. The following day, a Friday, housing officers still haven't heard back from the maintenance contractor. Around this period, a rat was supposedly removed, but Pierre has no recollection of that. On the Saturday, the smell was that bad, the cleaners. They walked in the floor and he went, oh, God, and I said, yeah, mate, that smell. Can you get the key for the bin? Because I think it's in the bin chute area. I've rung up about it on Friday and reported it because that's where I thought it was. I went out later and the smell was still there. So I thought, well, you know, maybe they couldn't get to the rat or... Um... On Monday, Pierre goes back to the housing office. He's told emails have been sent. There's nothing more they can do. Tuesday morning, he shows up at the housing office again. This time, he gets a surprising response. The lady said, oh, we've contacted the contractors. They said they'd fixed it. They'd come out and cleaned the bin chute area. And I said, well, it's not fixed. It still really smells, and now it's getting worse. I said, you need to get someone there. Oh, but they, I said, well, they haven't fixed it. I'm telling you, it hasn't been done. Early Tuesday afternoon, Pierre goes back to the housing office and he convinces a staff member to come to his building. That was the first time that anyone from that office in the last seven dead rats had come over to smell the rat while it was decomposing. They'll come later when the smell's gone and go, I can't smell anything. There was no rat here, you see. Pierre points out that the smell is near the front door of the building. Later that afternoon, a contractor comes out. And we walked around outside of the building and he smelled where it was coming from, from the vents. The vents come from underneath the next-door unit where his neighbour, Arthur Toomey, lives. Because I hadn't seen Arthur, I was just assumed he was on holiday. I wasn't connecting the dots at that stage. Something is decomposing in Arthur's flat, and Arthur is nowhere to be seen. This is Arthur Toomey. Well, it's the sound of his wheelchair bumping down the stairs outside of Pierre's apartment. My colleague Mario Christodoulou recorded this three years ago when background briefing first met the residents of the Northcott housing block. Wait, so Mario, you've met Arthur, right? 
Yeah, that's right. I, I remember that day. I was sitting on Pierre's couch and I heard this bang, bang just outside of his front door. I, I said to Pierre, you know, who's that? And he goes, oh, that's Arthur. So I open the door and I see this guy dragging himself up the stairs on his stomach with his wheelchair behind him. There's no other way to get out of that building if, you, if you're not walking up the stairs. So he's got no other option. And I remember um, crouching down and having a chat with him and he, you know, he's a real contrast to Pierre. Pierre is, you know, lightning in a bottle. He is all bluster and energy. Arthur was the opposite. He was quiet and he was reserved. He's the sort of person you could sit on a park bench and have a conversation with. Yeah, just a, a really lovely guy stuck in a really awful situation. Mario interviewed Arthur back in 2019. If you don't mind me asking and you don't have to tell me, um, how did you get your injuries? I fell off a balcony, so it's just a pure accident. Um, I ended up in the Prince Wales Hospital and I was paralysed from the waist down. So I couldn't move, I couldn't do any function like that, so I had to learn to walk. Got to be a partial walker and then all of a sudden the muscles in my stump was just small, so I couldn't actually walk again. At the time, Arthur was trying to negotiate a solution with housing. I wanted a doorway put through to one of the windows on the front of that building and of my apartment so I can easily access it from straight from the ground level. Mm. And that was not going to even happen. There wasn't even a hint of negotiation with that. So this is my daily ritual to get in and out of my apartment. It's just been a nightmare. It's been one of those ritual things that you have to go through to get anything done in housing. Housing told Mario they were doing everything they could to help Arthur. That was three years ago. We've since learned that Arthur was offered five different properties, including a ground floor apartment at Northcott. But he declined the offers. He had security concerns about the Northcott apartment and felt the bathroom couldn't fit his wheelchair properly. Since then, nothing's changed. Arthur's still in that same apartment without proper access. And now there's a disturbing smell coming from his vents. A pest man shows up and tries to help. He said, oh, well, I'll bring some smell absorbers, you know. It won't get rid of the smell, but it'll sort of help it a little bit, you know. Um, I'll bring those out this afternoon or first thing in the morning. The pest man doesn't bring the smell absorbers that afternoon or the next day either. By now it's Wednesday, and a frustrated Pierre calls the maintenance line. The person at the other end of the line tells him the problem's already been solved. If you look up the meaning for Kafkaesque now in the Oxford Dictionary, there's a little appendage down the bottom that says Sea Land and Housing New South Wales. Thursday, still no smell absorbers, and the smell's getting worse. Pierre goes to the housing office again. This time, he asks to speak to the person in charge, but he's told she's working from home. So he asks to speak to a senior client services officer, but her colleagues say she's unavailable. Friday morning, which is day eight, Pierre's told again the smell's been fixed. He tells them again, no, it hasn't. So someone sends some emails and they tell Pierre that's all they can do. By now, the smell's so bad, Pierre starts sleeping in the laundry. And not only that, something weird is going on with his pets. I kind of noticed my birds were behaving really strangely too, like, you know, strange squawking, and it was just 
it just was weird. They were behaving the way they were. And then I started talking to my neighbours and they were worried that it might be Arthur because I hadn't seen him for a while and started me sort of connecting the dots and then thinking, Jesus, I hope it isn't, but it might be Arthur because the smell's that bad, it should be going away. So Monday, 9am, 12 days after Pierre first complained about the smell, he goes back to the housing office, but they can't help. Pierre decides to call his local MP to see if she can pressure housing to do something. Later that morning, he returns to the housing office yet again, but now he tells them that he and his neighbours are really concerned about Arthur. When I went over to the office and said, look, we really need to do something, they sort of rolled their eyes like I was um, trying to exaggerate the situation or something. On Tuesday morning, Pierre loses his temper with a senior housing officer. I put it to her that she should do a safety check on Arthur. I think it's Arthur. And she went, don't jump to conclusions, like I was exaggerating. And, well, that's when I snapped and gave her the ultimatum, ring the fucking police before I do, you know. The housing officer calls police to do a welfare check. Half an hour later, the police buzzed my door, walked in, smelt it straight away and said, oh, look, there's no doubt about that, it's your neighbour. Pierre says when he asked about the cause of death, the officer told him it was death by misadventure. Arthur and Pierre were neighbours for almost a decade. As I'm talking to Pierre, he reflects on one of his last encounters with Arthur. He says he regrets not helping him with trying to get his flat fixed. You know, this is where I find it really sad because I, I'm not bragging that, that I'm a great solicitor or anything, but, you know, it is pretty cut and dry. It is pretty obvious what should have been done for him. It wasn't a big deal. Um, and I believe that if a judge saw that footage and Arthur would still be living in his flat, he'd have his little entrance where his bedroom window is and he'd probably still be here today. You know, and I find that really hard. I'm not sleeping well at night knowing that is the case, you know. You kind of feel guilty in a way, and I shouldn't, but I could have helped him. And now I can't. But just going through it, then it fuck it really hit me. They kind of hit the whole building like that, you know. Just not fair. Just not fair. I thought this is a country about fair goes. <laughs> the New South Wales government wouldn't comment officially on Pierre's account. Okay, thanks very much. Okay. The revelation of Arthur's death rocked the tight-knit community inside Pierre's building. Peter, how do you feel about what happened to our neighbour? It was disgusting. It really was, Okay. This is Peter, Pierre's upstairs neighbour. And he was such a beautiful person. You know, and young. Yeah, look, I'm starting to crying. <laughs> okay. Peter veers between angry and really upset. And you couldn't leave anybody in his situation in place like this. Look, uh, I had a lot of time for him, you know, and I felt guilty trying to help him because he said, no, 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 I'm okay. But he wasn't, you know. You could, you could feel it. 
look, it's what happened to the guy is just inexcusable. Okay, yeah, and it shouldn't happen, never, ever, to anybody in our society. Yeah. The more I talk to people in this estate, the more I realise people aren't just upset about Arthur's death. The people that live in these units are often vulnerable. They rely on housing. And the ones I speak to are frustrated with the system. The way they see it, Arthur's death is more than just a tragic incident. It's a symptom of a larger problem and a system that doesn't work. I believe that we are being despised by them, not by all of them. But generally, they look down on us. You know, we are practically worthless people. That's Andrew. He's a tall barrel of a man, and he's been living in this building for decades. By them, he means some of the staff in the local housing office. Andrew doesn't want to use his real name because he doesn't want to come across as a troublemaker. He accepts that working in housing is a tough gig, and he reckons even housing officers who start out with good intentions burn out. I believe, maybe wrongly, that things would be a little bit better here between residents of Housing Commission and Housing Commission itself if we have some trust. But the trust is broken. They don't trust us because quite often they were abused, we have to admit that, because there were some problems with some residents, but also residents, sometimes they are acting very badly because of a very bad experience. They cannot get response, they cannot get things. So obviously we are not in a cooperation, we are almost in a war with each other. Yeah, I visit a few other residents in their apartments on the top floor. They reckon there's a problem coming from the roof, and several of them have been battling serious water ingress and mould for months. As of September 2022, there are apparently no outstanding work orders for the Northcott building. But several residents say they still have issues. I meet 82-year-old resident Emilia. No good English. She's been having problems with mould in her apartment. Contractors did come and clean at her place, but it's immediately evident they did a brief and sloppy job. Oh, look, they have wiped it. They just smudged it. They didn't do that properly. Just come, the man. Yeah. 25 minutes. Cleaning. That's not cleaning, he just smeared it. Yeah. Amelia shows me what seems to be black mould in her bedroom. It's on the ceiling, it's in her clothes, on her linen, and she's really distressed about it. Look, all mole. Oh, yeah, I can see. All mole, look. And this is after it's been cleaned. Well, this is housing oh, cleaning it up. Well, I like very clean. Yeah. Look at here. Yeah, look at this. All, all. That's awful, I'm sorry. I old woman. Amelia tells me about one of the times she called housing and the person she spoke to told her they couldn't help her. I cannot, I, I cannot sleep in all time, tablet, tablet, tablet. Yeah, I have really stress. I have stress. I have stress. We also visit Sasha, who lives near Amelia. You home, Sasha? Oh, he's 
Hi Sasha, how are you? Are you getting flooded from the roof upstairs? Not anymore, but the ceiling is, especially in the, in the is, bathroom, is mouldy. I ask Sasha to show me the mould in his bathroom, but as I step into his apartment, I spot something that looks really weird. Just, just be careful. Oh my gosh, look at the paint on your ceiling. Over there. Oh, I didn't see that. Oh my God. There's a bulging mass hanging down from Sasha's ceiling. He's totally freaked out. Oh my gosh, look at that. I've never seen anything like <laughs> you that. You can take a, a picture of that. It looks like... They were drilling yeah. something. And they drilled right through, you see? And now the water is going through. Oh my God. I didn't even see it there because I just told you we'll look up in that way. You can take a picture of this yeah, if I you will, want to. I will. Sasha says a contractor came and tried to seal the leaks, but the fix didn't work. Another time, he says he wasn't home when someone knocked, and he found out later that he hadn't been included on a repair list. Several long-term residents tell me it hasn't always been this way at their estate, and that if I really want to understand the history of the place, I need to speak to their neighbour, Charmaine. Hello, Charmaine. Oh, hey. How are you? I'm okay. Charmaine's lived in Northcott for 27 years. She's one of the tenant representatives for the building and she works in community development, so she has an intimate knowledge of the policies that have shaped her and her neighbours' lives. She says when she moved in as a single mum with a six-year-old daughter all those years ago, the building was well-kept. I used to joke to people that it felt like living in a New York loft the maintenance was good, cleaning was good, uh, all the services were localised and you knew who the contractors were. There was a building manager and the rent office was just downstairs, so people would go down, pay their rent and have a yarn. If there was any issues, they would just tell the guy collecting the rent who would then arrange for someone to come out and have a look and get it fixed. Charmaine says... All that changed when the maintenance contracts were removed from local businesses, put out for tender and snapped up by big companies. She says nowadays, there's a lot of gaslighting, as in residents being told that things have been fixed when clearly they have not. And if you have a disability and you need a home modification, like Arthur did, forget it. It's very, very slow if it happens at all. I have a neighbour at the moment that's been waiting a number of years for um, a very simple modification, just a lowering of the front door lock in his front door. Um, he's got an intellectual disability. He's got a physical disability. He's also got no sternum and, and has had open heart surgery, but yet is waiting uh, so far over two years for that lock to be changed there have been lots of promises about when her neighbour's modification will get done. But even if local housing staff chase it up, Charmaine says they don't have much power anymore. The ultimate decision maker is the Land and Housing Corporation of New South Wales, or LAC. When people talk about housing or the Department of Housing, they're really talking about two separate government entities. One is DCJ Housing. They're like the real estate agent and they sit within the Department of Communities and Justice. They're the people at the housing office that Pierre and other tenants go to when they need repairs. The other entity is the Land and Housing Corporation, LAC, 
They're part of the Department of Planning and Environment, and they're the ultimate landlord. The landlord and the real estate agent used to all sit within one government department, but at some point they were separated, and many believe that that separation has been a disaster. Ultimately, it's the tenants who suffer. You know, if we were customers of a bank or something and getting that sort of service, they would never treat us that way. It's it's this kind of housos. Um, it feels like you're a second-class citizen. I'm at home with Pierre, and he's caught a parrot eating out of a pot on the stove. I took the lid off the fucking pot, sitting on the side eating my fucking soup. Oh, my God. Then when she flew off, she blew the fucking flame out again. Between her and this fucking stove, I don't know if I'll ever get lunch together. We get back to talking about Arthur. And while Pierre says housing's not responsible for Arthur's death, he thinks the way they handle complaints means that when something serious happens, it just gets lost in the system. See, they thought Arthur was another rat. So they were just fobbing us off, trying to ignore it, so the smell would go away. Of course, it backfired on them. It didn't go away. It got worse because it wasn't a rat. It was my neighbour. When Pierre was cleaning out the building's common laundry a couple of months ago, he came across a bag full of old papers, cards and other belongings. He looked through them and he realised they were Arthur's. It's inspired him to try and find Arthur's family and restore some dignity to his memory. Changes need to be made. You know, if we cut us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? You know, can't we have a dignified death? So I was kind of hoping to pass the stuff on to his family, and it certainly passed on um, the information about how cruel his time with housing has been. It needs to come out. You know, his family should know how he's been treated. I don't think they would be happy about it. Pierre finds some phone numbers on the papers in Arthur's bag and he starts calling around to find a next of kin. The number you have called is not connected. Please check the number before calling again. Yes, I wonder if you can help me. I'm trying to get some information on Eventually, he comes across a hospital where Arthur was a patient. Hi, how are you? Look, I had a neighbour um, and also a friend who passed away just recently. Um, I live in housing. And, and his, his name was Arthur Twomey. Let me, OK, let me just search his name. After about 15 minutes, it looks like Pierre might be on the precipice of a breakthrough. No luck. The receptionist gives Pierre another doctor to try, but when he calls, it turns out that doctor's since left the practice. While Pierre's trying to come to terms with Arthur's death, he's also dealing with a serious issue on another front. Housing is trying to evict him. Suddenly, I've now been sued with a termination notice. They're taking me to court to take my tenancy off me. The staff at the local Surrey Hills office have levelled some pretty serious allegations at Pierre. They say he's been threatening, intimidating and aggressive. 
the way they see it, Pierre is constantly on their case, to the point of harassment. And he's often loud and vulgar about it. Pierre denies being aggressive and threatening, but he does admit to being rude, and yes, vulgar, when he gets frustrated. The way he sees it, they're out to get him. And this is just retaliation for all the complaints he makes about the building. If they remove me from this building, they hopefully can brush Arthur under the carpet because I won't be around to make a noise about it. I won't be able to help other tenants and represent other tenants at NCAT, which I've done in the past, and win for them and embarrass housing. I've heard other residents in the Northcote block also talk about the fear of retaliation from housing. Whether this is real or perceived, people are scared to speak out. And it's something Arthur himself mentioned in his interview with Mario three years before he died. Why doesn't everyone make complaints about this and, yeah? Because they'd be targeted just like Pierre's been targeted. Maybe you make too many of them. You know, you, you become, yeah, your life becomes a little bit more difficult to deal with, you know. I decide it's time to try and speak to some of the staff in Pierre's local housing office. I need to hear their side of the story and to learn more about the challenges and frustrations of their job. So I head over to the housing office, which is only a short walk from Pierre's unit, and approach one of the front desk staffers. The woman at the front desk of the Surrey Hills housing office smiles at me and she says, you're trying to open a can of worms. While I'm waiting to speak to one of the managers, a guy comes in and complains about a leaking roof. The manager eventually comes out to see me and she hands me a post-it note. It has the contact details for the Department of Communities and Justice media team and she says I need their permission to interview her. She asks me what my story is about and I tell her. I also ask her some general questions and she seems pretty forthright. I leave the office and go back to my car. So... I'd just gotten into the car, um, I had a bit of a chat with the senior housing officer there. I asked her if she felt like the policies were adequately resourced and she said, well, you know, you can always have more money, then we could get more tradespeople and that sort of thing. But she felt like she seemed to say that by and large, the whole system worked. But parliamentary inquiries and ombudsman's reports tell a different story. They suggest that public housing is failing its tenants in critical ways. I want to understand how the situation has gotten so bad, so I reach out to the New South Wales Shadow Minister for Housing, Rose Jackson. You know, you hear a lot of stories about bad landlords in the private rental market, and I I know there are many there, but it actually really saddens me that the scummiest landlord in New South Wales is the New South Wales government. She says both sides of politics are to blame. I mean, the the sad reality is we've ended up in this situation because of a long history of underinvestment in public housing and social housing. And, you know, Labor governments in the past have done better, I think, but, you know, have also contributed to this. And now it's become a real crisis. As Rose explains it, the Land and Housing Corporation, or LAC, has a funding problem. It's meant to be funded from the rent it collects from tenants, but these days the rents are so low that LAC struggles to collect enough to cover its costs. So it has to sell its properties and plead for government grants and cash injections to make up the shortfall. It's a decades-old problem, but recently the situation's gotten pretty bad. 
And to prove it, Rose pulls out a half-centimetre thick wad of paper. Inside, each page is marked Sensitive New South Wales Government in red ink. And on the royal blue cover page, I see the words Incoming Minister Brief. People might recall there was a sort of reshuffle at the end of 2021 when, you know, Dom Perrottet sort of just after he'd become Premier and he sort of set up his new team and Anthony Roberts became the Housing Minister and this brief was prepared for him by the Department of Planning and Environment. The Land and Housing Corporation and housing is obviously a big part of that. I ask Rose how she got a hold of that document and she tells me it fell off the back of a truck. What I think is quite striking about this document, you know, it's not written for public circulation, but we have it and I'm happy to circulate it, is that they were really upfront with him about how broken and dysfunctional and unsustainable the funding model was. The bits that really jumped out to me were the the part where they say... Additional funding is urgently needed given the Land and Housing Corporation's unsustainable funding arrangements. They say that there are major operational risks driven by unsustainable financial arrangements, low growth in social housing stock, even with stimulus funding, an ageing portfolio and a mismatch of supply with tenant needs. Rose says public servants rarely speak in such desperate terms to a minister. That's very direct language. That's not the way that they talk normally at all in public about these issues. In budget estimates just over a month ago, Rose asked the minister responsible for lack, Anthony Roberts, about the document. Minister, you were advised in December last year that additional funding is urgently needed given the Land and Housing Corporation's unsustainable funding arrangements. What did you do about that? Well, first of all, I spoke to Land and Housing Corporation, and then I spoke to my secretary, uh, and then we lobbied for money in, well, I've got to say, what is one of the, the, the greatest um, housing uh, levels of funding that I think this state has ever seen. Rose went on to ask Simon Newport, the then acting chief executive of LAC, if he thought broadly their funding was adequate. Yeah. Do you think that the Land and Housing Corporation's funding model is unsustainable? I think self-funding is... Is, can be challenging at times. I'm certainly happy to concede that it's a challenging model, yes. I wanted to get answers for myself, so I reached out to the Minister for Homes, Anthony Roberts, the Land and Housing Corporation and DCJ Housing. Initially, there was good news. The Deputy Secretary for Housing agreed to an interview. But then something happened behind the scenes that I don't fully understand. The interview was cancelled and DCJ Housing and LAC decided to send me a joint statement. This is not the first time we've asked tough questions about the state of public housing. Back in 2019, my colleague Mario had similar queries about the system. So, Mario, tell me, what kind of a response did you get from the department back when you did your story in 2019? What they told me at the time was that they have to complete more than half a million maintenance jobs every year. And for most of those jobs, they say they are done... Uh, fairly quickly and to the satisfaction of residents. However, 
they did also mention that there is a problem with inner city blocks, particularly aging inner city blocks, which I can only assume are blocks like Pierre's. And that is that it's more costly to maintain them. And then they also made the point that you tend to get a higher number of what they called tenants with complex needs in these blocks. People living with disabilities, people with mental health issues, elderly people, and that that requires more services to support those people. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, just looking at the Ombudsman's latest report on um, the needs of people with disabilities in public housing, seems like it might not be just inner city blocks where there's concentrations of people with high and complex needs. 20% of all people in public housing have a disability. I mean, that's a huge proportion of people when you think about it. They also made the point that those larger capital works programs that they have to do, they take more time. And you know, even in my interview back in 2019, they were saying that they don't always see eye to eye with residents because sometimes things can take years to get done. I had a comb through some answers to supplementary questions in Parliament and saw that as of the 13th of September, the department says there's only a tiny number of maintenance jobs outstanding, something like 41. So by their accounting, they get to most requests within six days, urgent requests within three days. It seems that by their metrics, they're doing a pretty reasonable job. And I think that's something that uh, it's hard to square with what you hear on the blocks. And you've heard it and I've heard it. Residents living there who are saying that things aren't done to their satisfaction, that jobs are sometimes not done at all, that it takes repeated calls. So there is a bit of a disconnect between what the department says and what people on the ground are saying. Absolutely. What did they say about funding to you back then? Well, they were pretty open about the fact that housing funding is not sustainable and it's a real challenge to actually, you know, pay for everything that needs to be done maintenance and rolling out new housing stock as well. Yeah, I saw um, in budget estimates that in response to Lack going to the new minister and saying, hey, we urgently require more funds, that he actually went and lobbied for money specifically for maintenance and managed to get $300 million. So, Mario, I have just literally got an email from the minister for families, oh, yeah. communities and disability services, Natasha McLaren-Jones. Yeah, what is... just come through. What is um, uh, it's a statement and she says the well-being of tenants is a personal priority and I am always keen to make sure the department looks after their needs. It's concerning to hear when tenants feel that more could be done for them. So I will always press the department to show care and compassion in dealing with people. And finally, she says, there will always be improvements to our systems that can be made. And I speak regularly with my colleague, the Minister for Homes, to listen and act on client feedback. I'm catching up with Pierre. He's not satisfied with housing's response to his concerns. To use his words, it's straight out of the propaganda pages. The way he sees it, little has changed over the years he's been dealing with housing. And because nothing changes, maintenance issues fall further behind and residents just feel more alienated and neglected. Look, we're not hoping that housing are going to turn into a fucking butterfly. We'd be happy with a moth. But if I'm successful in my case, I'd like to call it the metamorphosis of change. Not the catalyst, the metamorphosis. There's got to be some change. 
It's now three months since Arthur was found dead in his apartment, and Pierre says most of his stuff has been taken to landfill. But Pierre hasn't given up on trying to find Arthur's family. He fishes Arthur's old bag out of the laundry again, and we crouch down in Pierre's lounge room amongst the birds, sifting through what's left, trying to piece together any clue that may lead us to a relative. This is a condolences card. Dear Arthur, to express... I might have been over losing his legs. So when he moved in, he wasn't in a wheelchair, is that...? Uh, but very shortly afterwards, he lost both legs and finished up in a wheelchair pretty quickly. Now, he had legs to put on, but he found that he couldn't wear them because they used to really get... Stumps would get sore from the weight in them. They told him it would take him time to get used to, but he confessed to me he didn't think he ever would use them on a because it just hurt too much, no matter how much he tried to... How old was he when he moved in, do you remember? No, he's got to be in his late 40s, early 50s, I'd say. That's young. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and a hairdresser, I believe he was. This is from, an, like, an auntie Gloria and Uncle Perry. Yes, I'm just wondering, all these aunties, and no one came to visit him. Maybe they live somewhere else. Maybe he came from a country town or something, and they're all far away. But they obviously cared. Yeah, I know, that's the thing. Pierre tells me Arthur's unit is still empty. It's been cleaned and emptied as if nothing ever happened, ready for a new tenant to move in any day now. Background Briefing's sound producers are Lila Shunar and Ingrid Wagner. Sound engineering by Russell Stapleton. Fact-checking by Benjamin Sveen. Supervising producer for this story is Mario Christodoulou. Our executive producer is Fanu Falali. And I'm Mayetta Clark. You can subscribe to Background Briefing on the ABC Listen app. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.